0: Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear and John Birdzall. I'm Kirk
1: O'Bear. Hello, Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdzall. Good to meet you. Hi, John Birdzall. I'm Kirk (laughs) O'Bear. Oh, wait. I know you. (laughs) I know you, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So how have you been? I've been really great. Um, You know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, COVID's been a trying time for everybody, but uh, I haven't let it kind of get me down. And I think things are kind of returning in the court system to a certain extent, although it's kind of on pins and needles for the rest of this year, I'd say, because, you know, the Delta variant, people refusing to get back vaccinated and who really knows. (laughs)
0: Vaccinated, (laughs) vaccinated.
1: That's what (laughs) it sounded like you (laughs) said. I, I, I I may have said that. I don't know. It's uh, okay. All right. It's all a blur now, but anyway, it's, You know, it's I don't know about you, but um, I like a lot about doing things by Zoom, but I like a lot about doing things in person. Well, I initially when COVID
0: was just getting started and we did practically everything from home, um, I thought I liked it and I thought it was something that I could get used to. But now that we've had some uh, getting back to normal, being being physically in places, I realize I, I far prefer that. If it's something that doesn't isn't of much consequence, of course, I'd rather not drive for three hours just to say not guilty to the judge or something. But uh right. you know, in general, I just I feel like I think better on my feet and I like to have my client there next to me when something significant's going on. It's very um disorienting to be appearing by phone or Zoom and have your your client doing the same thing from another location, and I find that um, it just interferes with what we hope to to be a, you know, kind of a close relationship between the lawyer and the client. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why there was quite a bit of reluctance to implement a widespread practice of using Zoom instead of in court hearings, because in, in without uh, these remote proceedings, we would normally be sitting in a courtroom next to a defendant who can you know, lean over and ask you a question or write something down on a piece of paper. And, you know, I'm sure someone feels much more comfortable when they have their counsel right there with them rather than, you know, it doesn't make it any uh, more soothing, I suppose, to (laughs) to have a situation where you're not in the same place. So I've been appreciating that more. Um, We've been getting back to doing trials, of course. Um, It's still a pain because there's still social distancing and plexiglass and masks and all this other stuff. And I'm, I'm not sure it really does do a very good job of, you know, the way things should be in an ideal world. But I also, I, I just kind of have to think out loud. Uh, the sense I get from almost every judge I'm appearing in front of these days is that um, they're acting like, Hey, we're so far behind. And, you know, I have one judge that tells me how many days have gone by since the case was initiated, and some of them are pretty hefty numbers, you know, 300, 400, 500 days, and <laughs> they're kind of acting like COVID never happened, you know, so <laughs> like it's my fault or somebody else's fault. But anyway, uh, I think the judges are, you know, it's always a challenge. I don't know if most people know this, but the kind of the main thing that a judge worries about on a, on a daily basis is just keeping that calendar moving. And um, I was thinking about this, um, I think, last week sometime uh, about different strategies that different judges use to keep their calendar moving. And I know some judges that will give both parties a lot of leeway. You know, you come in and you say, judge, I'm working on this. I'm working on that. And they'll say, yeah, OK, thank you. Come back. I remember back in the day, there were a few judges, I Remember one in particular that was down in Kenosha. You'd have your first hearing and the judge would warn you right off the bat that you're going to get one adjournment if you ask for it, but you're not going to get any more, no matter what kind of case it was. Could have been like a most the most complicated case you've ever had. And you know that you're going to have to keep working and progressing on this thing. And uh, the judge would just take this attitude like, well, you get one, and that's all you get. Um and there, there is there are some other judges i know that you're familiar with um remember the rocket docket in uh yeah. in, in i think that was judge shabazz that kind of uh coined that term but you'd come into court and he'd be like all right you're gonna get discovery today we'll do jury selection next wednesday and yeah. then we'll be taken off you know and, and if you raised any kind of fuss he just would not care one bit and he was you know famous for keeping a pretty clear calendar um I, I just find it a little – it's become a little frustrating in the sense that, you know, you and I have much more complicated cases than I think the most the most typical lawyers that, uh, you know, kind of handle run-of-the-mill things. And it's true. I think that a lot of lawyers are just kind of helping their clients get through the system. We tend to get hired on cases where people are innocent or they – You know, or it's something where there's been a a pretty significant violation of someone's rights, and that takes a lot of work coordination, and it's like climbing a mountain. You know.
1: Well, you know, um, I had a uh, discussion years ago with that had a a big impact on me when I was a young lawyer, Um, and it was one of the elite defense lawyers in the state at the time. Still is, by the way. And he said that, you know, we were talking about the subject about, you know, defense lawyers and what certain levels of defense lawyers do. And um, his comment to me was like, when people come to our firm, they come because they want to win. And that was like, that was all he had to say, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because they know that they'll do everything they can. Everything that's humanly possible, turn over every stone. And that's what we do. And and I like operating like that because I feel that um, if you're just processing paper and pushing humans through a, a you know a largely unjust system, then you're not really being a lawyer. Right. You're being you're just being a processor, and and well, um, we don't we don't want that. I think that there are some
0: some cases where if somebody really just doesn't want to spend the time or the money and if they know they did what they're accused of doing and it's not that big of a deal, they probably should have one of those lawyers that's really just going to kind of guide them. I mean, that's okay with me. That's fine. I don't think everybody needs like a high powered, super experienced, super tough lawyer, depending on the circumstances. But I think that if it's, it's part of what keeps the system honest, because I have no doubt that the easier you make it to prosecute people, the more people will get convicted and the more innocent people will become convicted. It's kind That's of this, this sure. responsibility that we have to keep the system level or honest in, in many ways by making it so that our, everybody's rights, your rights, my rights, all of our listeners rights are uh, constantly being protected. We have to remind the court system and the prosecutors what those rights are and what happens if law enforcement runs afoul of them. And if we didn't do
1: that, we'd be living in a different kind of society right now, one that we wouldn't like. So that's a very interesting comment. And, and um, it really brings to mind something. I know this, this will resonate with you. Um, the autopilot uh, manner in which judges and prosecutors often treat, quote, rights, and I'm using air quotes there. <clears throat> and because that's the way they view them, they don't view them as something to take seriously. Like, for example, Miranda, the Fifth Amendment, or your right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment, or search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment. They consider those kind of nuisances that, even though they're like critically important, really historic in the history of the world, and rights enshrined in, in a governmentally operating document, and they consider them nuisances just to get through. And that's always bothered me. You know, the police when they sit down with um some suspect <clears throat> they will they will always treat the Miranda rights <laughs> as it's just oh, this is a little formality, and then we'll get to your confession, okay? So just don't worry about that. I just got to get through this. That's that's it's no big deal. I know you want to oh, talk uh, to
0: me, but before I can let you talk to me, I have to read. You know, yeah. you've seen it on TV. I have to read you this thing,
1: yeah, yeah. right? So, um, and and so it, the cavalier attitude, I guess, is what bothers me the most. And you and I, and other defense lawyers who take this very very seriously, um. We, we <clears throat> breathe life into those rights. And we're the only ones doing it, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. I mean, there's occasional judge who takes them seriously. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to indict all judges here. Um, right. In fact, in fact, there's a number, you know. But a lot of judges come from the ranks of DAs and they spend their life as prosecutors. And, um, and, and so it's, it's a difficult mindset to abandon when you put on the robes.
0: I think you're right. Um, it, and I, it's going back to what I started off saying, And you know, is this challenge of moving the cases along. And, you know, their judges are more or less graded on their metrics. Not It's not like they get a formal scorecard or anything like that. But it's one of the metrics by which their peers analyze them. And I, I think also in terms of a measure of efficiency is how many cases, how old their cases are. You know, they've got an average, uh, you know, case load and extended out so many days. And that's kind of like a, you know, they measure their success in moving the cases along by how old their average case open time is. And that's just kind of a irrelevant thing, I think. But we do have to take a break, John. So we'll be
1: right okay. back after these messages. And we are back. Uh, with more uh complaining about the court system, no we're not um <laughs> we're not complaining or we
0: well, everybody likes about our show at least those people that tell me what they like about the show. Well, I get a lot of you know comments about what people don't like about the show, um mostly people accusing us of being too liberal, which actually isn't true, but anyway, um the thing that most people appreciate is the you know, taking the time to explain things that it would really take an insider's perspective to ever know or appreciate those uh, those aspects of the system. I think this is one of those things that your average, you know, man on the street, John Q. Public doesn't realize about the court system is that there is this enormous pressure um, that the parties face, but also judges face Uh, to keep things moving. Now, some of that's legitimate. You have people that are in custody or on a cash bond or, you know, with uh, however you want to interpret provisions of Marcy's Law or Chapter 950 that uh, impacts how quickly a case moves along is, um, you know, those are all valid considerations. However, we have to remember how this whole process gets created. It's essentially there's an investigation that can take as long as they want it to take. The law enforcement agency could, in connection with others, uh, do an investigation that lasts years. I mean, as long as it's still within the statute of limitations and that they don't have all to the time, some, they don't have to get some bad guy off the streets necessarily. Uh, they take their time and they, you know, they try to, you know, like anybody, they're inundated with not just one case, but many. But they get that luxury of doing whatever they want, however they want, with with an ultimately tremendous amount of resources. Then, as soon as the DA's office decides that they're "quote unquote" ready, they can drop the case, you know, drop the charge charges going forward by drafting a criminal complaint and initiating that process. And then, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, we got to get this done immediately. And usually, a defendant, and then more so the lawyer or lawyers representing the defendant have to get up to speed on everything that happened, the nature of the investigation, how things were gathered, what sort of processes were used, and so on. And, you know, we don't have just one client at any given time. We have many. And most of our cases, the cases you and I have, are very complex. So, you know, this all ends up being something where When you schedule another court date, you're in court and you say, I got this to do, I got that to do, we're working on this, we're working on that, we're trying to get some additional discovery from the prosecutor, we realize that they should have something that they say they don't, and then the judge says, okay, we're going to set it for another date, and that's just some random date down the road, it could be 60 days or whatever, and then all sorts of other things happen in the interim and judges often get all upset if the, it's not ready to go like we thought it would be even though there's so many different moving parts it's like herding cats you know <laughs> and uh it really is a lot more i don't know if people think that a case should just come before a court they can say okay read the file it's only 100 pages you know that's not even a very long novel come back and
1: let's do the trial like it's that simple you know well um, that's the way it's presented you know in tvs and movies um, because by the nature of that medium, you know, they're just going to focus on the one case because that's the story they're trying to tell mm-hmm. without, without contextualizing the hubbub that is the criminal legal system. As a matter of fact, I've decided I'm going to stop calling it a criminal justice system. I'm oh, yeah. You said
0: that on a previous show.
1: criminal right? legal system. And the reason for that is, is because justice is such a. I don't know, like misleading. Mis- <laughs> misleading, it's a it's a manipulated word by everyone, you know, because everyone right. wants to say they're doing justice and nobody can define what the heck that is. Right. So yes. um, anyway, I, you know, and that's the but that's the way it's portrayed. So in the popular mind, if you don't have any experience in the system, you don't see the thousands of cases um, that are. Surrounding the one that you're paying attention to, right? You know, you just want the drama of, you know, oh, this witness is going to come in and say this. Oh, this evidence is coming in, and it's, oh, it's DNA, you know, whatever it is. And, um, you know, it's 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 interesting then and eye opening, I think, to a lot of people to talk to people who actually work on the inside and see all the machinery works. I just had a client call today where this very subject sort of came up about, um, you know, what could actually happen and the reasons that the things happen and why it's taking so long and that sort of thing. And it's it's important that not only our clients, but everybody kind of know how that works and not just work off of headlines and, you know, sensational, you know, mug shots, which, by the way, I think that should be um, outlawed somehow. I mug shots up on the TV news all the time. Oh, I know.
0: <laughs> well, I actually had a case where it, it helped my client incredibly because of the way he looked when they took his bug shot. It was at part of it was one of our defense exhibits that we used, but that's another story. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I, I was going to note that there was a discussion on one of the listservs that that I'm part of about you know, what's the best example of good lawyering or creative lawyering? And people, you know, said, well, yeah, sure. You know, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, you know, whatever. You have all these old movies. And somebody said, well, you know, my cousin Vinny I, is one that you actually get to see a lot of things happen that are interesting. And it was, I was quick to point out that that bears no resemblance whatsoever to an actual court process, um, the way that it happens. I mean, sure, there were some little tricks and twists and turns and things like that. But, you know, the thing that is most uh, crazy about that movie is that if you if you notice from start to finish, from the time that the crime was allegedly committed to the time that the prosecutor jumps up and says, your honor, case dismissed, is roughly about, you know, three and a half or four weeks
1: total. You know?
0: Yeah. A case
1: like that, to do the let, let's take that for example, which by the way, I think my cousin Vinny is the greatest trial movie ever made. It's better than dial M for Murder. Um, It's better than The Verdict. And the reason I say that is because, even though it's unrealistic on that point you just raised, it covered every part of the trial process. And I thought pretty accurately.
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of what happens at the different phases, yeah.
1: dear, um, you know, Discovery... Uh, you know some of the objections and rulings, and you know, I mean, I just really thought it was well done, um, in that sense. But you're right, you know, a case like that. Okay, here's a question for you. Let's say <laughs> those two utes walked into <laughs> walked into your office and wanted you to do their murder trial. How long do you think it would take from day one? Until you did all your investigation and got all the discovery and got ready for trial with the expert witness and everything um, to take it to trial I
0: would be optimistic if I said one year and um that
1: would be would, unusually fast i would I would agree with that I would agree with that and yeah, um just. and and that's hard for people to wrap their heads around because Again, we go back to, well, I don't just have one case. Also, the court doesn't just have one case. So you Prosper probably does not have one case, just one case. The Prosper expert doesn't, doesn't have one yeah. case. All the witnesses so that the other trials have to work. work. Yeah. Plus, we need time to, you know, and plus there's going to be motions. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that you never see on TV. Right? <laughs> Come on. Right. Do, you, do you see right. a motion to suppress statements? Do you see a motion to suppress a search? No, because, because that's just not sexy.
0: I mean right I mean they might reference it once in a while on in a law and order but it's usually I, like I, in chambers yeah when the I mean, judge cites some case that doesn't exist like well you're going to have a McKinley argument here you know
1: <laughs> it's it's cool to us because man, <laughs> we're breathing life into these rights Well the other thing about my cousin
0: Vinny that actually I agree with you is not not your typical you know crime crime drama or whatever you want to call it um the 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 two Utes are not guilty, and you know that from the beginning, and you're mm-hmm. witnessing this process where they have there's great potential for them to get railroaded and uh, not taken seriously in the system. And you remember the prosecutor just acts like, "Oh, well, I definitely got the goods on them." By the way, after I saw that movie is when I started going hunting with the prosecutors every weekend. Right? <laughs> uh, Cuz I figured out that's a great um, way to get discovered. I'm going to
1: no. I'm going to have to look into that. I also <laughs> want to get that suit. Yeah, you no, know, the, the leather one Oh, or the well, uh, magician one, the yes, yes. sideshow um, magician one. That that was uh, that was magical. That was just yeah. magical. Um, you know, uh, but you know, I want to return. To, if I can just circle back a little bit, you made a comment about how some people think we're too liberal or whatever, and you know what? We can throw around terms like that, you know, all we want, um, and I think they're kind of hollow, kind of meaningless in a lot of sense because. Uh, it turns into a tribalistic sort of like my team your team sort of thing uh, but if you look at what we do and we as defense lawyers, we I always like to say that we are law enforcement officers, uh-huh. we're, officers we're officers of the court and we enforce the constitutional laws of the United States right yes. I So. Agree. And those constitutional laws, and most, I would focus mostly on the 4th, 5th, and 6th Amendments, and if folks haven't read those, they should, but the 4th Amendment deals with search and seizures, 5th Amendment deals with um, incriminating um, statements and also due process, and the 6th Amendment is about the right to counsel and speedy trial. And the point is, those are all prohibitions on the government, and that is a very conservative place to be. Am I right? Right.
0: right I agree. And well, hold so, that thought because we do have to take a break. Our commercial sponsors oh, are knocking have, on the door. so much. We got to, to let time. them in. Go so ahead. come on in, guys. All right. We'll be right back. We're back with more legal defense. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for those commercial messages. Uh, have a good day. Thank you so much. Close, I've purchased close, everything. Close the door um, on your way out. Thank you. All right. So, uh, Talking more about uh, you, you raised no. a very good point. We are law enforcement officers.
1: Yes, we are, and so maybe we don't have badges, but we don't need them. We, we don't have need a, no well, stinking badges. We, have, we don't need no stinking badges. We have a little book called the United States Constitution, and um, and by the way, the Wisconsin Constitution for that matter, and um, and and so when we bring what we call motions. Which I always thought was a kind of a strange term, but it's never thought about that. But you're right; that's a weird thing to call it. Yeah, like it's moving around or something. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, it's more like a request, but whatever. We're just gonna like win in Rome, right? So, but when we bring motions, we're asking this individual we call a judge, who's been imbued with the authority to block. Action, so a search or a um, a statement that uh, was taken with you know um, over overbearing the suspect's will, or whatever the case may be. Those are checks on government, and I'm always confused when um, people who identify as conservatives, which is fine, you know, I you know it's like i think we need to have a variety of viewpoints but when they they look at defense lawyers and maybe as liberals which i always thought was extremely misplaced mm-hmm. because because we're just because we don't work with the police doesn't mean we're not conservative because in fact it seems like the most conservative instinct is to put checks on governmental power and what? Correct. Body governmental power more than police with badges and guns. Right.
0: Overreaching so and, so you know, getting into your business and not letting you do what you uh, perceive to be your right to do freedoms and etc. cetera. Um, I have a question along the same lines and this, this has always bothered me, but going back to when in the early days of my practice, And I know that you experienced the same thing. I had many occasions when there would be what I perceived to be a very clear violation of of my client's um, constitutional rights. It could be a Miranda issue. It could be, you know, lying on a search warrant. It could be just about anything. And it was common. I would say, if not a, a regularly expected phenomenon for a prosecutor to say, yeah, you're right. Uh, This police should not be doing that and taking, and the idea was, and the judge would then hear about it and say, yes, you need to train your police officers to not do this thing. And this case will serve as an example as to why as time has gone on, I've noticed a distinct shift in the attitudes of prosecutors where, and you've seen it, you've seen how this works going all the way up uh, the appellate chain to the higher courts where the police will do something that appears to be very clearly uh, contradictory to, or in contravention of one's individual rights. And yet the prosecution handling the case tries to find a way to justify it. And what ends up happening is that they, they argue for these extensions of the law, they want to whittle away at, at uh, prior, prior protections of our rights. I mean, I remember one case where there was just an atrocious uh, interrogation that occurred. And it was basically, you know, all the things that you think about that uh, you don't want to see in an in interrogation, uh, a lengthy amount of time, deprivation of sleep um person didn't have food or water you know those are all things that they're trained to do and they just didn't do it in this case because they thought they had the opportunity to really get a confession and it it was working its way toward um where ultimately the police are giving the person the impression that all of this misery can be over with quite soon if you simply end up agreeing with what we're saying and you can see that it was, you know, it was coerced all these things that were done just are not a very good example of, of what should have been done ideally. And uh, so I raised the issue to the prosecutor. They're like, well, I think it was perfectly appropriate. Well, why is that? Because they're cops. That's why that's the only reason why. Right. And it never used to be where like the, the DA's office has like this partnership where they're automatically affiliated with, with the cops. I mean, I know that's kind of the traditional view of things, but they're supposed to be more of a, they're not supposed to go to bat for every single thing. The police
1: do, you know, and position though. Well, <laughs> well we see that. We see that in more dramatic cases. For example, when um, there's DNA evidence, absolutely exonerating some guy who's been, convicted and spent 20 years in prison and it's very clear they're they're innocent right identified another perpetrator etc and they are still clinging to that conviction because they don't want to be seen as agreeing to letting somebody out right Right. i've never never wrapped my head around that which is ludicrous that's just because as we all know well as you and i know (laughs) <laughs> you mean like we all, you all, and I all. What we well, there's prosecutors under the ethical rules have a special responsibility. They are not supposed to be dedicated to seeking convictions. They're supposed to be dedicated to justice. That slippery term that um, that I'm trying not to use as much. Uh, and. And I and I think that kind of rings hollow because that's just not real life. That's not the
0: way. Yeah. Works. No, I know. Because I've had cases where I went to the prosecutor and I said, hey, you know, and I cite that ethics rule, you know, everybody knows it. And I say, do you do you, sir, actually believe beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is guilty? How could you? And the prosecutor sort of says, Yes. Yes, Kirk, I, I do. I believe beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, you know, it's not like there's a mathematical test that you can apply and they can say that anytime they want. What they really don't want is to get some kind of flack from the cops that they ended up uh, throwing in the towel because the cops did something wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that's essentially what it entails is you have to go. You have to tell the police officer like, OK, you did something that messed up this case. So, you know, we're not going forward on it because of you. Well, <laughs> this,
1: this, you know, a lot of times this comes down to ego. Yeah. So the ego of the police, they don't want to ever be seen as wrong. The prosecutors don't ever want to be seen as wrong. And yet they have this weighty responsibility. You it know, reminds not- me of another conversation I had recently with a, with
0: a client. And, you know, things were changing, getting closer to trial, and the prosecutor kept coming back with different uh, offers. And the client said, well, do you think this means they're afraid they're going to lose? And I said, they don't care if they lose because then they can blame the jury.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, you know, Here let's it's say too. it's a sexual assault allegation. That's why these things don't settle and they end up going to trial and then it's an all or nothing, and which is another thing that contributes
1: to wrongful convictions in that area to a very high degree. Well, you know, Most, they're just playing with people's lives and... Um, th- that's why I don't think I could ever do that job, yeah, honestly, yeah. because, you know, yeah, you and I have a responsibility to our clients and their lives are in our hands and that's a weighty responsibility, but we're trying to protect them right, and their families. But when it's you're a very clearly time, delineated
0: responsibility. So you know, there's no question about where your allegiance is or what you're supposed to be doing
1: or, or yeah. anything. It's just like very direct, you know. But but with the prosecutors, I mean, I'm just not comfortable with the idea of spending your professional life consciously trying to send people to live in cages, right? You know? I'm just well, I, have I'm my, just not. I have
0: my own views on whether that's even appropriate to begin with, no matter what someone's accused or convicted of, because I think we're just playing into a fairly barbaric uh, mentality when we do that. And unfortunately, it's the thing that drives the system. I mean, that's the one thing that people care about the most is incarceration. But it's not the thing that deters any kind of crime. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. It, you know, all it is, is that it's a place where things don't smell the same and you don't get to hug your kids. I mean, it's, You know what I mean? And you're around other criminals. That's what, what the heck? You know,
1: I mean, it's it doesn't you know, even make sense. What's interesting about prison, and we can follow this up after the break, too, is that prison, the prison model of corrections was really originally designed to be. To use, to use the term, kind of a liberal thing to uh, prevent barbaric punishments. Around the same time we started calling them correctional facilities. <laughs> yes. And um, and
0: it's I got to slow you down there, buddy. We're, we got to take a break. Take a we break. A right, last we'll call off. Hold oh, that. We oh, come back.
1: We'll be right back. OK, here we go. We're back. And more ranting. Oh, more ranting. No, I, I'll mean, do raving. I mean, you do the ranting. I'll do the raving. I mean careful discussion about legal issues. That's what I meant. Okay. Uh, Well, when we left, I was talking about um, the, the the prison model of corrections, which really is a recent phenomenon. Yeah, there were prisons in maybe you know medieval times, but they were like dungeons. They were like they were like political things where you put your opponents there and stuff like that. This was more designed to prevent. Well. Cruel and unusual punishments, you know, um, tar and feathering or, um, you know, other mob sort of thing. And, uh, activity, I don't mean like mafia, I mean, (laughs) I mean, I mean, mean pitchforks, Um, but, and it's, it's interesting. That same mentality was the same mentality that white Americans used, uh, with native Americans, um, with uh, wanting to have them move to reservations because and be, you know, set up Indian schools where we can teach them white ways and English and all that stuff. And those were really actually started by progressive people who thought this was the best thing for them. And, in fact, I'm in the middle of reading Trail of Tears, which is… Oh. Goodness. One of the, it's just an amazing book, by the way, about the Cherokees in southeastern U- U.S., but, um, and, and their removal ultimately to Oklahoma. But the, you know, the, the, that, that sort of mentality is, 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 um, rooted in our criminal legal system. And, and, you know, prisons have taken on, obviously, <laughs> a very different meaning than what the original intent was. And it's just a severe punishment. It's warehousing people. um, And it's a convenient way to um, attack and oppress certain portions of the population that a lot of people don't want included in the population. If you follow my meaning. And I'm referring to not just poor people, but just minorities in general. And um, uh, and and so uh, I, I don't think that's a uh, that's a liberal thing to say. That's just a fact right you now. So, well, I think you're right. I mean, the essence,
0: the origin of so many laws, I mean, even as recently as when the U.S. Sentencing Commission increased the guidelines for crack cocaine offenses to be 10 times more than mm-hmm. regular powder cocaine. I mean, that wasn't that long ago, but. You know a lot of the, we got we have laws in the books right now, like felons not being allowed to vote in our state. That's pure Jim Crow. There's nothing, nothing short of that. I mean, that's I've, I've that's never, I've never
1: understood that.
0: Remnant you know, that from class- an era when you could make a class of citizens ineligible or disenfranchised because of your own manipulation of the system. And you know the whole story behind this, obviously, you do, John, but you know, you can make something that, uh, by law enforcement focusing on a particular issue, let's say vagrancy or something like that, or loitering. How about that? That's a good old fashioned uh, leftover from those days. Loitering, which, which is what hanging around, right? Not being productive. You're not at work. You're not at home. You're somewhere in between, right? So it's like Uh, this random thing. And then if you, you can do this, where you make two or three of these minor offenses become a felony because they've happened within a certain amount of time of each other. And guess what? Those tend to be whatever part of the population the uh, cops want to target or the lawmakers want to target. And then guess what? We've got an entire group of people that have been selected to not be able to participate in in elections. Um, And that's not a liberal thing either. That's the history of those kinds of laws, many of which are just still on the books. But I, I still find it to be one of the most primitive aspects of our culture and the most primitive aspects of our jobs. People do dumb things. They make mistakes. Good people do bad things. Uh, Bad people do bad things, but we all do. We all make mistakes. This is all, we live in a world where we hope that the law provides some structure and guidance, but it also is that thing that people use when they, when the government wants to step in, And it is the most intrusive feeling when you're dealing with a family that has some sort of domestic issue and the husband and the wife have to live in different places until the prosecutor figures out what they're, you know, some 26 year old at the DA's office is going to decide what's best for a couple that's been married for 50 years and has four kids and uh, eight grandkids that I'm sorry to say kid that's in the DA's office somehow believes them, them himself or herself to be wiser in those things. And, you know,
1: that's because the system is structured to tell them that they're wiser. Yeah. So
0: (laughs) in other words, as a representative of the government, they come in and say, look, yeah, I know you had 49 years and 364 days of blissful marriage, but this one day is, what i'm i'm all about and i want this one to mark the rest of your life to make you targeted as somebody who's going to be identified as a domestic abuser or whatever. And but getting back to the whole confinement thing, aren't we at a point where the whole the whole reason why we have prisons in addition to it being a reform type, you know, theoretically, i know it isn't. You're right. It's warehousing. We, we just basically pull people away from their loved ones and their support systems, right? The things that are psychologically important to, to have um, a quality of life. And they say, yeah, you can have a quality of life wherever you are. I learned that in the military. You can send me to some God awful place and I'll make the best of it and I'll end up having a good time. You know, that's, but I I'm capable of doing that. And I know that a lot of people end up going through a correctional experience quote unquote and it's not as bad as they thought it would be but the ultimate thing is i think it's completely unnecessary um it's the it's the long pole in the tent in every single case it's what we talk about all the time it's what people are most afraid of you hear clients all the time say can i just pay three times the fine and not have to go to jail it doesn't work that way you know Ah. and and uh you know what we're really talking about is some curtailment of your freedom which is what it's really all about right i mean and with the, the kinds of technology we have, I mean, every person that has even a little bit of money can very easily obtain like one of those ring doorbell things, you know, cameras. Uh, we've got technology that on everyone's phone that can tell somebody else where you are. It'd be the easiest thing in the world just to restrain somebody if that's really what we need to do to protect, quote unquote, protect the public probably better than sending someone off for 10 years to interact with other people that have committed crimes and have to count down every day until they're released and then figure out what they're going to do on the outside. Now that they've been deprived of any meaningful opportunity to be a normal person again,
1: you know, well, this actually raises what could be a whole show unto itself, <clears throat> uh, an issue because, uh, we, you and I have been talking now about governmental authority and governmental uh, power and the exercise or you know um, pushback on said power. And of course, uh, in 1789 or 1787, when they actually drafted it, but by the time it was ratified, um, it that was the concern because we were, well, didn't want a monarchy, et cetera, et cetera. It was a big turning point in the history of the world. But the history of the world has changed. And now we have powers over us right now that we barely recognize. We kind of know they're there, and that's big tech. And, right. and not just private companies, but also the government, the NSA, you know, other spy agencies, et cetera, That work in secret, but you know the amount of data that people that companies have on us is so remarkable, and that's what we were trying to keep the government at bay and just let us live our lives. And you know, the right to be let alone is a famous quote from a Supreme Court case. Right. And um, uh, and and yet we have voluntarily (laughs) ceded a lot of that. Through the term time You know, we'll, we'll, let, let's pick this up In another show uh, do, I think it's worth that. talking about
0: Absolutely, right when we get the ball rolling Then it's time to make it stop Alright, yeah. well thanks for uh, listening Everybody, you can tune in next week as you can Every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL, it's been Legal offense with Kirk and John Have a great weekend Have a great one